the tenth episode of Ulysses is spread throughout the city. It consists of 19 separate incidents, and we meet all sorts of characters in them. We today have come to the site of one of those incidents, not certainly not the most important one, but the one in the middle, it's the ninth one, and it takes place in a billiard hall in Crampton Court, which is just off Dame Street and has special resonances for me. The 19 episodes are framed, as it were, by the first and the 19th. The first talks of a walk that Father Conley takes from Gardner Street to Artane. The superior, the very Reverend John Conley, S.J., reset his smooth watch in his interior pocket as he came down the presbytery steps. Five to three. Just nice time to walk to Artane. And the 18th follows the vice-regal cavalcade from the time it leaves the vice-regal lodge and ends up in Bald's Bridge. William Humble, Earl of Dudley and Lady Dudley, accompanied by Lieutenant Colonel Heseltine, drove out after luncheon from the Vice-Regal Lodge. And in between the other 17 episodes, we have a lot of the characters that we've met previously, some new ones, but we should recognise others that appear there. And we're not going to go through all of the episodes, but I'll just talk briefly about the first and the last. Father Conley comes out of Gardner Street Church, turns left towards Mountjoy Square. His trip, by the way, would be about three, three and a half miles. And he walks along Mountjoy Square and meets Mrs. Sheehy, Mrs. David GMP, and of course, obviously, a valued parishioner. Very well indeed, Father. And you, Father? Father Conley was wonderfully well indeed. So they exchanged pleasantries, and he had already passed the sailor, who was begging, singing and begging, but realising that he had only a crown in his pocket, he couldn't give him anything. Father Conley blessed him in the sun, for his purse held, he knew, one silver crown. He walks on, meets three little boys at the corner of Mountjoy Square and Fitzgibbon Street, asks them their names. They are, of course, in Belvedere College, which is a few hundred yards behind them. And he asks one of them to post a letter for him, which he does. But mind you don't post yourself into the box, little man, he said. The boys six-eyed Father Conmey and laughed. Oh, sir! Well, let me see if you can post a letter, Father Conmey said. Then he walks along Mountjoy Square and sees a lady with a queenly mien and gait going along. And he says, isn't it amazing? And to think that she was a pawnbroker. Well, now, such a, what should he say, such a queenly mean. So there is an element of pride in his makeup. He distinguishes people with whom he meets. He walks down down Charles Street and looks at the church that's closed there and rather condescendingly refers to it. The Reverend T.R. Green, B.A. Will D.V. Speak. The incumbent, they called him. He felt it incumbent on him to say a few words. But one should be charitable. Invincible ignorance. They acted according to their lights. 
And he goes on down to the North Circular Road, turns right, I think it's then he thinks of that there ought to be a tram line along such a, a busy thoroughfare, which is exactly what Bloom had said earlier on when he was in the funeral cortege, and everyone had mocked him at that time. So, Anyway, he goes on and he meets a, a gaggle of young boys then, and of course he notices them that they're not as well dressed as usual, and of course Christian brother boys, he rather looks down on them. So he passes on and crosses the top of Summer Hill onto Portland Row and realises there's a, a home for aged females there and thinks of how awkward aged females can be to deal with. Virtuous, but occasionally they were also bad-tempered. And he goes down to the Five Lamps in Amien Street, turns left along the North Strand and passes by uh, Corny Kelleher's establishment who's inside twirling a coffin lid around and then he passes a policeman and comes to Newcomen Bridge where he gets a tram not because he doesn't want to walk but because he doesn't want to go past through the dingy area of Mud Island which is an old name for Ballybock at the bottom of Malahide Road he gets out and walks up towards Artane he's in the country then it's all built up for miles now and he thinks of his time as rector of Clongo's Wood. And then he takes out his breviary and starts reading it. And a boy and a girl come out from behind the hedge and he blesses them silently. And he goes on to do what he came out to do, which is to get young Dignam, one of the five children of Patrick Dignam, who was buried this morning, into one of the, the Artane school, either the O'Brien Institute or the Reformatory of Artane, it's not made clear which, I think both of them are run by the Christian boys. But anyway, he's going out to see the superior there to see what he can do. So that's the end of that episode. So you have that sweep around the north side of the city. Then, at the end of the episode, you have the viceregal cavalcade, the Earl of Dudley, Lady Dudley, and their aide-de-camps coming out in two open carriages, trotting down the main avenue of the Phoenix Park, out Phoenix Park Gate, into Park Gate Street, down along the various quays, when they come to Bloody Bridge, or what, I think it's Rory O'More Bridge now, we realise that Tom Kiernan is rushing down to try and see him, just misses them. And as they go along, Aaron Key and Ellis Key, and along by the forecourts, they see different people. Of course, when they come to Ormond Key, the two barmaids are looking out. Above the cross blind of the Ormond Hotel, gold by bronze, Miss Kennedy's head by Miss Deuce's head, watched and admired. Mr. Dedalus is coming out of a public urinal, which is a urinal, and he bows low to them, which is most unusual. On Ormond Quay, Mr. Simon Dedalus, steering his way from the greenhouse for the sub-sheriff's office, stood still in mid-street and brought his hat low. His Excellency graciously returned Mr. Dedalus's greeting. One wonders if he's buttoning himself, having <laughs> haven't been what he was doing. Anyway, we don't know. And they then turn right and go across Essex Bridge, 
or Grattan Bridge, which is now, and go to Parliament Street. And we know that Gertie McDowell just missed them there. When they get to halfway along Parliament Street, they are seen from Kavanagh's wine rooms, too, by Long John Fanning, who's with Martin Cunningham. They go then as far as the City Hall, and as they go down Dame Street, near Trinity Street, Haynes and Mulligan are there having tea, and they see the Viceregal cavalcade go by. From the window of the DBC, Buck Mulligan gaily and Haynes gravely gaze down on the viceregal equipage over the shoulders of eager guests whose mass of forms darkened the chessboard whereon John Howard Parnell looked intently. The cavalcade goes down as far as College Green. They turn right there, go up by the Provost House, turn left onto Nassau Street, go into Leinster Street and then into Clare Street, on by Merrion Square, Lower Mount Street, Northumberland Road, and on out to Ballsbridge to the Myris Bazaar. And out near Lansdowne Road, they see Mr. Artifoni's backside disappearing into a house. And the salute of Almidano Artifoni's sturdy trousers, swallowed by a closing door. That's about it. But that as it were, describes an arc on the south side of the city. It's as though you have two arcs, one on the north and one on the south side, and that's what frames all of the rest of the incidents which occur within this. I don't think there's any difficulty in reading any of the incidents. The only thing that puts you off is that there is inserted cross-references in all of them, and if you ignore them, I don't think it's any harm. In your summary of those mm. two framing uh, sections, mm. you had to mention, obviously, a lot of names, mm. street names, and that is what the chapter is about, places. Mm. Uh, we move from the algebra of the library, with its profound thinking and all of that, to out into the streets. Most mm. characters are out in the streets. Uh, one reason mm. may be that the pubs may have been closed. Uh, I don't quite know whether that's so it's been mentioned. But anyway, they're in the streets, and we are on the surface now. It's another easy chapter to read, so it just changes that, because uh, the chapter is superficial. This is not judgment, this is merely descriptive. There are not so many old words, or not as many allusions, and all of that. So we come to a kind of a geometry, and there's a lot of, I say, places. We know exactly where people are, and Joyce here gives you an overview of the city. Again, this chapter, like Eolus, the seventh, focuses more on interaction city life, and it does it in a kind of cinematographic way. Much of it, leaving out some interior monologue passages, would serve as a film script. You could do this right away. And of course, the way you show a city is by focusing on one little scene here and another one there, which Again, it's like the seventh chapter. You have lots of minor characters. Some we know, others are introduced newly, and we have no idea who will be developed. Some will, others are forgotten. Uh, it's again a chapter of alternatives. Uh, Ulysses might have been written about Mr. Kern or something. It suggests all kinds of other novels 
that are not written but somehow implied and it has literally this kind of thing that the character in moving from one point to the other wonders how to go that we have a scene should I walk should I take a tram and, and all of the kind of modern city problems we have of getting from one place to the other stroking his nose with his forefinger undecided whether he should arrive at Fibsborough more quickly by a triple change of tram or by hailing a car or on foot through Smithfield, Constitution Hill and Broadstone Terminus. It seems at first as though there was a kind of branching off effect. We have Father Conmy, as you said. He passes Corny Keller, the undertaker, who was in charge of the funeral arrangements in the Hades chapter. Then the next little section is Keller. He also has passed the blind, uh, the one-legged sailor, who has a little section to himself. And it could be Brancho, but it isn't. Then later on we have all kinds of scenes. But, in a way, most of the characters reappear in the last one in their reaction to the carriage. Ironically, not Bloom or Stephen. And, of course, the two framing sections, as I call them, are the representatives of the church, a high-ranking Jesuit, and the Viceroy, um, Lord Dudley, Lord Lieutenant, Lord I think that was uh, the <coughs> official title who is mentioned by uh, Something. Joyce does something, again, a little bit unfair, I would say. So far, we've had really existing people and fictional characters. The fictional characters had thoughts that we could share, Bloom and Stephen. And now, Joyce makes us see what Father Conmy, a real Jesuit, and his old teacher thinks. This is really an encroachment on somebody private. It's, a, it's quite an interesting thing. Father Conmy was a memory in the previous chapter, and now he is here in his own right, and he walks a little bit. And also, his thoughts are not very profound. And her boys, were they getting on well at Belvedere? Was that so? Father Conmy was very glad indeed to hear that. And Mr. Sheehy himself? Still in London. The house was still sitting, to be sure it was. Beautiful weather it was, delightful indeed. Yes, it was very probable that Father Bernard Vaughan would come again to preach. Oh, yes, a very great success. A wonderful man, really. Certainly you have a reference, unannounced, not distinguished uh, in any way, of Father Conmey walking through, I think, Clongo. So obviously this is a transposition. And Joyce does this so that we have displaced elements that should really be somewhere else. And it seems to be uh, Joyce's way of indicating while something is going on here, at the same time something is going off. So he can suggest what language can never express, and that is simultaneity, things happening at the same time, because language is sequential. The rumor is, I mean, uh, Frank Budgeon reported, he was uh, very close to Joyce at the time, that Joyce bought a, a game called Labyrinth, and with his daughter tried to figure it out. And this is a kind of labyrinth of a city. And it is a book that can also be read with one's feet, walking. You learn a lot about this. Of course, insiders know much more, and for the rest it's just a city in which you have to find your way. Anch'io ho avuto di queste idee, Almidano Artifoni said, quando ero giovine come lei, e poi mi sono convinto che il mondo è una bestia. È peccato, perché la sua voce sarebbe un cespite di rendita, via. Invece lei si sacrifica. Sacrificio incruento, Stephen said, smiling. Stephen appeared twice, and it's very interesting because Stephen is speaking to Artifoni, 
there. And Artifoni is offering to develop his voice, yeah. and for no money, it appears, yeah. he realizes. The, again, the hand of friendship yeah. has been put forward mm -hmm. to Stephen, and while he's polite and he's grateful and all the rest, you know, he doesn't commit himself there. And then, a few incidents later, he's looking through books, and he meets Dilly, who's bought a French primer. She hasn't got a halfpenny, he knows. Mm -hmm. They're starving at home. Mm -hmm. He has money in his pocket. Yeah. And wasted on journalists. Yes, yeah. and he, does he attempt to give her any money? Does he give her real any sympathy? Yeah. He just says, don't show any surprise mm -hmm. when she's yeah. going to learn French. And that's about all. He took the coverless book from her hand, Chardonnay's French primer. What did you buy that for? He asked. To learn French? She nodded, reddening and closing tight her lips. Show no surprise. Quite natural. Here, Stephen said. It's all right. Mind Maggie doesn't pawn it on you. I suppose all my books are gone. Some, Dilly said. We had to. There's a lot of money mentioned here. Mm. Money that you have or don't have. Mm. Father Conley, he does not give those five shillings, whereas Bloom puts down five shillings for Dignam. So there are all these little correspondences here. Yes, which he couldn't afford. It was an extremely generous yeah. contribution on his part. Father Conley does not give the one-legged sailor, mm. any money, just a blessing outside of the Sisters of Charity <laughs> of all places. So location also yeah. is used uh, by Joyce quite well. And of course we also find out where Boylan was heading when he was going up Kildare Street. He was going to Grafton Street. And we know that he's very flashily dressed. Mm. Uh, by the provost's wall came jauntily Blazers Boylan stepping in tan shoes and socks with sky-blue clocks to the refrain of My Girl's a Yorkshire Girl. My girl's a Yorkshire girl, Yorkshire through and through. My girl's a Yorkshire girl, a by whom she's a champion. Blazers Boylan, presented to the leader's sky-blue frontlets and high action, a sky-blue tie, a wide-brimmed straw hat at a rickish angle, and a suit of indigo serge. His hands in his jacket pockets forgot to salute, but he offered to the three ladies the bold admiration of his eyes and the red flower between his lips. We also see Blazes Boylan flirting with a shop girl, mm -hmm. and he is buying fruit and obviously a bottle of port. 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 Uh, says it's for an invalid, and he sends it to... We know who the so-called invalid is, mm -hmm. although it's not mentioned there, and then he is a, is a bit flirting, gets a flower. The interesting thing is, there are some minor characters who have tiny bits of interior monologue, mm -hmm. like Boylan and like the shop girl and others, so interior monologue is not limited to just Stephen Well, uh, I think Blue. it's about half a line. It's very little, you, you it's very little, but it is. These are also changes mm -hmm. in, in perspective, of course. What's the damage? He asked. The blonde girl's slim fingers reckoned the fruits. Blazes Boylan looked into the cut of her blouse. A young puller. He took a red carnation from the tall stem glass. This for me? He asked gallantly. The blonde girl glanced sideways at him, got up regardless, with his tie a bit crooked, blushing. Yes, sir. She said. Bending archly, she reckoned again fat pears and blushing peaches. Blazes Boylan looked in her blouse with more favour, the stalk of the red flower between his smiling teeth. May I say a word to your telephone, Missy? He asked roguishly. And of course we find out the date. Miss Dunn clicked on the keyboard. 16th June, 1904. 
Miss Stone is Boylan's secretary, mm-hmm. and he asks in the shop, can he use the telephone? Yeah. And a couple of things later, we find Miss Stone in her office taking a telephone call yeah. from Blaise. We have lots of one-sided conversation <coughs> when we only hear one part. And of course, again, you have all kinds of technological things, vehicles, telephone, and all of that, the sort of thing that keep a city together. It's interesting that they go down, they go into a bookie shop, Lenehan goes in and puts off Bantam Lyons, backing yeah. his horse. Yeah. So Lyons seems to have got from Davy Burns, of course. Here we can trace movements of certain minor characters, mm. what they did in the meantime. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, we have Mr. Breen, who has been going from one lawyer to the other, mm. and he wants to, to find Menton and didn't find him. And at the end, they are only a few, a few steps away from mm. each other, not knowing it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And then, of course, um, McCoy and Lenehan see Bloom in Merchant's Arch, they come into Merchant's mm-hmm. Arch. First, we don't know who the dark-backed mm-hmm. figure is, or it could be Stephen or Bloom, but mm-hmm. this time it's Bloom, and they say he's interested in books and astronomy, and Lenneman has a, what he thinks a funny story, that on the way back from the Glencree dinner, Lenneman was sitting next to Molly, and Bloom was pointing out the stars, and so the Lenneman made free with Molly. I was tucking the rug under her, and settling her boa all the time. Know what I mean? His hands moulded ample curves of air. He shut his eyes tight in delight, his body shrinking, and blew a sweet chirp from his lips. The lad stood to attention anyhow, he said with a sigh. She's a gamey mare and no mistake. Bloom was pointing out all the stars and the comets in the heavens to Chris Callanan and the Jarvie. The great bear and Hercules and the dragon and the whole jing-bang lot. But because I was lost, so to speak, in the Milky Way. Something that McCoy doesn't appreciate for some And then uh, Lenin says this kind of a pacified... He's a cultured all-round man, Bloom is, he said seriously. He's not one of your common or garden, you know. There's a touch of the artist about old Bloom. When we see Bloom, he is looking not at the book on astronomy, but at an erotic book. Mm. So it's a, it's a complete reversal from the previous story, where astronomy was used for erotic mm. purposes by Lenin, <laughs> which post and Bloom does the mm. reason. So, but anyway, he gets, and that's a book, Sweets of Sin, which would be sort of, we'll call it mild pornography mm. now, mm. I take it. Sweets of Sin? More in her line. Let us see. You read where his finger opened. All the dollar bills her husband gave her were spent in the stores on wondrous gowns and costliest frillies. For him, for Raoul. Yes, this here. Try. Her mouth glued on his in a luscious, voluptuous kiss while his hands felt for the opulent curves inside her dishabille. Yes, take this. There's something, I say, mildly erotic, mm. uh, we would yeah. say now, and uh, Bloom carries that to bring home for Molly. It's obviously the story of an adultery, a woman who buys fine clothes, not for the husband, but, and this is echoed for him, for Raoul, somebody mm. else. So. And as I say, we don't know which characters will turn up. One of them, Gertie McDowell, who is just one of the others, will in fact uh, turn, in fact, have mm. a half a chapter uh, for herself. As you already said, we have two barmaids mm. looking out of the Ormond Hotel who would then be responsible to initiate the next chapter. But you can never tell. Other people are unnamed or uh, are never mm. in, uh, followed up. It's interesting, too, that we find Mulligan with Haynes in the DBC 
which was, I yeah. think, on the first floor. You could be yeah. on the first floor and yeah. look out onto the street. Mm -hmm. But Mulligan is telling Haynes that Stephen is mad. He's running him down. So obviously he's been disappointed by uh, yeah. Stephen. And, uh, and the parting may not have been amicable. I mean, he's not the, the tolerant fellow that we found up to this. They drove his wits astray by visions of hell. He will never capture the attic note. The note of Swinburne of all poets, the white death and the ruddy birth. That is his tragedy. He can never be a poet. The joy of creation. But of course, <coughs> you get the impression that behind people's backs he would do that sort of thing, hmm? you know, which is not entirely uncommon in this world. No, <laughs> <to be sure. laughs> no. And then there's this thing that he says... Buck Mulligan slit a steaming scone in two and plastered butter over its smoking pith. He bit off a piece hungrily. Ten years, he said, chewing and laughing. He is going to write something in ten years. There's a lot of ten and twenty years. Uh, that, of course, reminds us always a bit of Homer and, uh, and all of that. Early critics have always speculated in how far is Stephen Dedalus also Joyce, who in ten years, because... In Ulysses, at the end, it says begun 1914. Mm. Uh, uh, this is it. So this is another open oh, question. Joyce is making a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy, I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, as you say, though, it is one of the funny chapters, and uh, you have to laugh at most of the things. Here. There's very little that's really serious here. Yeah. Stephen is probably the most serious thing. That's there you get his <coughs> thoughts, and they're always very dense. Yeah, he, he put a, a wet blanket on anything. But, I mean, Master Dignam is particularly funny in his reactions yeah, to things. We have. Mm -hmm. Even to seeing the toff talking to the drunk, <laughs> yeah. whom we then realise, because he has a flower in his mouth, is Blazes Boylan. Having yeah. come out of Thornton's and walked down Grafton mm -hmm. Street and met Bob Dorden. Young Dignam is sort of characterised, his word is blooming. Huh? blooming They're yeah. now stronger words in circulation, <laughs> but that was already a euphemism by bloody, obviously. Mm, yes. And of course we have an echo of bloom and things like that. And he also looks at the poster. There are a lot of mistakes. Mm. And he thinks a, uh, that would be a, a good pocking match, yeah, he calls it, to yeah. see. And then he realises it's already gone. God, that would be a good pocking match to see. My luck, yo. That's the chap sparring out to him with the green sash. Two bar entrance soldiers half price. I could easy do a bunk on ma. Master Dignam on his left turned as he turned. That's me in morning. When is it? May the twenty second. Sure, the blooming thing is all over. Well, of course, also Father Conmee's trip out to Artane is to get Master Dignam yeah. into uh, a school, yeah. and Master Dignam, as obviously, hasn't got the foggiest idea of what's in store for him. He thinks he he's has a few days yeah. off school, and then the things are going to go back to normal. Yeah. Little does he know, Master Dignam, who is of course the son of Paddy Dignam, whose funeral it was mm -hmm. that morning. And he hasn't quite realised uh, what the no. death means to him. No. Right? The curse to him is not really shattered. He's more concerned with everyday things, and he has to come to terms with it. Yeah. Huh? And will people look at him? Yeah. Don't you know, will he be a, an object of curiosity yeah. as a result of and this? And his name will be in the paper. Right. That's yes. an important thing, too. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. He met schoolboys with satchels. I'm not going tomorrow, either. Stay away till Monday. He met other schoolboys. Do they notice I'm in mourning? Uncle Barney said he'd get it into the paper tonight. Then they'll all see it in the paper and read my name printed in Pa's name. 
This chapter Joyce referred to as Wandering Rocks, mm. which is a slight Homeric thing. It's not really in Homer. Odysseus was told either to take this dangerous path through what were clashing rocks, it was a, a danger in Chipre, or else to go through Skill and Charybdis, which he did. So Joyce makes a whole chapter out of something that in Homer is only an alternative not taken. And this is also a chapter of alternatives, some taken, some not taken.